I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is the Ajo Highway, Arizona. The Ajo Highway is a desolate 118-mile stretch of road between Tucson and Y, Arizona, and was built in 1935 as a two-lane roadway through sparsely populated areas. Also known as State Route 86, the highway has developed into a vital link in Tucson's transportation system as development and traffic increased on the city's southwest side. The Ajo Highway is the primary east-west highway that transects what used to be known as the Papago Indian Reservation. In the 1980s, the historical name of Papago was rejected, and the reservation now calls itself the Tohono O'odham Nation, meaning desert people. These lands are characterized by wide plains bordered by tall mountains. Although certain points now have more lanes, in 1970, the Ajo Highway had one lane in each direction. Among the members of the Tohono O'odham Nation is an elite group of Native Americans called the Shadow Wolves. The name refers to men who grew up on the reservation and learned tracking skills handed down from generation to generation. Now the Shadow Wolves use these tracking techniques to patrol 76 miles of the shared border with Mexico looking for drug smugglers. The stretch of the Ajo Highway that we're focusing on for this episode is the 66 miles between Tucson and Cells, which is an unincorporated community and the capital of the Tohono O'odham Nation. In 1970, driving this lonely stretch of road invoked fear and uncertainty after it became the target of one killer's aggression. At 4.30 in the afternoon of May 22, 1970, two small children playing on the side of a desolate stretch of the Ajo Highway drew the attention of three Native American men who worked at the Hecla Mines. The area was located in the heart of the then Papago Indian Reservation, and the three men lived on the reservation in cells. The men, who were on their way home from work, saw the children playing on a sandy berm next to the two-lane highway and pulled over. They questioned the children, a four-year-old boy and two-year-old girl, asking where their mother was. The little boy responded, She's over there, pointing to the brush. Then he said, She's dead. My mommy has been shot. The three men searched the roadside until they found tire tracks. They then walked about two-tenths of a mile and found a car stuck in a wash. Lying on the ground beside it was a woman. She was scratched, bloody, and partially disrobed. It was clear that she had been shot in the head, but she was breathing when they found her. Unconscious, but breathing. The woman was rushed to the cell's hospital, but died en route, never gaining consciousness. Pima County sheriffs were then called in to investigate. The woman was identified as 27-year-old Nancy Harwood, a married mother of two from Tucson, Arizona. Nancy's husband, Gerald, was a graduate student at the University of Arizona doing research in biological sciences, and the two had been married less than a year. Nancy was a fifth grade teacher at Miles Elementary School. According to journalist Monty Gast of the Arizona Daily Star, Nancy Harwood and her friend Virginia Hodge, who was an award-winning women's editor for the Arizona Daily Newspaper, were driving to Rocky Point, Mexico for the weekend. Both the Hodge and Harwood families had lived as neighbors in a duplex for at least a year. The women planned to stay at a trailer at Rocky Point, and Virginia's husband would join them later. Nancy's husband had to work and he was unable to make the trip. Because they couldn't fit everything into one vehicle, the two women were driving in separate cars and caravanning together. Nancy had her two children, ages four and two, and Virginia had her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter with her. Virginia told police that they left Tucson at about 1 p.m., and she was traveling ahead of Nancy as the lead vehicle. Virginia had noticed a green vehicle, either a Ford Mustang or a Ford Maverick, that was traveling in the same easterly direction as they were. You know what's funny, Kathy, is I think the reason she noticed this car is that my brother-in-law 
and my nephews by association, they have a green 1969 Mustang. Oh my God, you've seen it. Yes, I know that. I do know that. You've heard it. It used to wake the neighborhood up when the boys went to school. Totally. But that green is a very distinctive. Very distinct green. You're totally (laughs) right. Yeah. The parents used to hate the kids when they went to high school because the roar of the engine would always wake them up. But the boys loved it, even though it had no power steering, no power brakes, exactly, no air conditioning. They had to actually put in cross seat belts because, of course, back in 1969, it was just the lap belt that they had. If anything. (laughs) (laughs) I distinctly remember this is like a quick when the seatbelt thing popped into my head. My mom and dad used to buy cars from like insurance sales. And sometimes they had old police cars. We had this police car that was painted green and it was just this total like hot rod of a car. And I remember we never wore seatbelts as kids. Coming to a stop at a red light, my mom was going to blow it. And then she decided at the last minute to slam her brakes on. I go flying. I crack the windshield (gasps) with my head and I get yelled at. (laughs) Like, isn't that classic? Yes, that's exactly what should have happened. That is so it's like, I'm I'm lucky I didn't get smacked. (laughs) I was like, what? Did you have to clean the blood off the window, though? You know, it's like <laughs> cleaning your own blood. Yeah, you know, that's a good it's like my mom laughed at first and then she yelled at me. And I'm like, like, both of those are completely inappropriate responses. <laughs> All right. Virginia said on their travels, she saw a green car at least four times over the course of many miles, but wasn't sure if it was the same green car. About 15 miles east of Cells, Virginia noticed in her rearview mirror that Nancy's car was pulling off the road, raising a cloud of dust. She then saw a green car pull off the road as well. According to an article in the Arizona Republic, Virginia slowed down and looked for a place to pull over. Then she parked and waited for Nancy to catch up. When Nancy didn't show, Virginia decided to go back and look for her. As she's making her U-turn, she noticed behind her The green car had come up and parked. As she made a U-turn and passed by it in order to head back to look for Nancy, the driver of the green car waved at her and she waved back. Because the sun was in her eyes, she couldn't see the driver but believed it to be a man. Virginia did not see Nancy's vehicle in the area that she thought she had pulled off, and she figured maybe Nancy had driven past her and maybe Virginia had missed her. So Virginia turned around her car again and began heading westbound. As she did, she saw the green car again, now heading eastbound back towards Cells. So the green car is now going in the direction she had been going when she went to look for Nancy. Correct. Okay, but she backtracked back again. Exactly. Unbeknownst to Virginia, the three Papago miners had found Nancy. So Virginia, of course, doesn't know this, so she's continuing to head westbound. She stops in Covered Wells, she stops in Y, and she stops in Lukeville, and she just started asking people if they had seen Nancy's car. Which, Kath, by the way, I think it was a Volkswagen Beetle. It was described in many of the newspapers as a small foreign car. Virginia eventually stopped at a sheriff's roadblock where she learned of her friend's murder. Just as a quick aside, I can't imagine going to a roadblock and learning of your friend's murder, who you're looking for, what have you. No. And the only thing I can come close to equating it with, and it's not even really equating it with, is when I was growing up when we used to go to the Best Lake before Mm -hmm. Kathy came with us. (laughs) It was right after my dad died and friends of ours went with us instead because I think mom probably just wanted other people there, you know? Yep. And they actually pulled our boat. So we're driving home. And as you know, there's a lot of windy roads as you're getting out of where the lake is. Cars are totally backed up huge accident has happened. We pull up to the side of the road. My mom asked the sheriff what happened. And he said, a car pulling a boat went off the side. Oh, and of course, in my mom's mind, it was our neighbors for sure. And so she was like, what does the car look like? And he's like, move along, ma'am, move along. She's like, no, you know, my mom. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm sure she schooled that guy. She did. And then he, you know, came back and was really nice and offered her a cookie. Right. (laughs) But I just remember like even us being as young as we were, like that trepidation of like, did we lose a friend? Right. It isn't anywhere close to this, but that buildup of learning from a stranger when you're not expecting it. But how bizarre for poor Virginia. She sees in her rearview mirror her friend go off the road 
And then she probably feels like she's in the twilight zone. Yeah. Like what happened? I don't understand why I can't find her. And is she berating herself for not going back right away for just pulling out? Yeah. And, you know, she shouldn't Who be obviously, knows, but, but yeah. yeah, there's, there's too much that can go on. But I don't know if I said it. Thankfully, it was not our friends. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> I, I assume that that. <laughs> it had a happy ending. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Pathologist Dr. Jay Anderson said Nancy had been shot twice in the head. He conducted tests that showed she was also raped. According to an article in the Arizona Republic, Sheriff Walden Burr of the Pima County Sheriff's Department told the press that Nancy's children said the man shot their mommy and sometime later shot her again. Both bullets entered Nancy's forehead, one lodging in her brain and the other exiting her neck. Both slugs, which were 22 caliber bullets, were recovered and sent to the FBI crime lab in Washington. When Nancy Harwood's murder was reported, the public was horrified. How could someone kill a woman and leave two toddlers to fend for themselves in the desert? It was absolutely unthinkable. The sheriff's department was asking for the public's assistance, not just because the crime was so horrible, but because they literally did not have the manpower. Even before Nancy's murder, the Pima County Sheriff's Department was understaffed and overworked. Two months before Nancy's murder, in an article by journalist Greg Chamara of the Arizona Daily Star, Detective Sergeant John Lyon was the head of the sheriff's two-man assault squad, which was supposed to investigate all murders, rapes, armed robberies, and assaults in the county's jurisdiction around Tucson. Detective Lyon was quoted as saying, it's just impossible to get the job done without the men to run an effective detective force. Detective Lyon also said that they were promised more help and told the public they had slots for investigators, but no money to pay for them until the Pima County Board of Supervisors approved a new budget. According to the article, and again, this is two months before Nancy's murder, Detective Lyon said that for all practical purposes, he was the only man investigating the recent murder of a young girl. His caseload also included two other murders besides the young girls. One involved a drug informant and the other a 33-year-old father. So, as we said, when Nancy Harwood was murdered, the public was exceptionally horrified by the callousness. They wondered what was happening to their community. Detective Lyon had mentioned in the article two major murders within a week. These murders also happened to be committed near the local highway. Two months before Nancy was murdered, in March of 1970, a 33-year-old laborer, Ernesto Luna, who went by Ernie, was found dead at a construction site where he was working. He was a married father of three, and his family was devastated. Ernie was found dead south of Tucson, about a six-minute drive from the Ajo Highway. He was slouched over the controls of a backhoe that he had operated for the Navajo Sanitation and Construction Company. An autopsy revealed that he had been shot in the back with a shotgun. The investigators were perplexed. It appeared random, and Ernie's family was interviewed and could give no clues whatsoever as to who would want him dead. According to John Field of the Arizona Daily Star, five days after Ernie Luna's murder, the bloodied body of a 14-year-old girl was found south of one of the Gulf fairways at the Oro Valley Country Club. She was found just before 5 p.m. by a couple who were horseback riding. The girl was Cindy Winter, and her semi-nude body was found under a bush in a dry wash bed about a half mile from the road. Her dog was with her when the couple found her. The wash bed ran alongside the road through the desert near the country club. Cindy's devastated parents, Ross and Mary Winter, who lived about a quarter mile from where she was found, said she left home between 4 and 4.30 p.m. to go to the country club, but never arrived. And Kath, what was interesting, and we've mentioned this before, in the articles that I read, the old newspaper articles, they gave the little girl's home address. I still can't believe that. I, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I know. Yeah. Her bicycle was found about 100 yards up a nearby hill. There were bike tracks leading up the hill, but investigators did not know if she had ridden the bike up there or whether her assailant took her there. According to journalist Greg Chamara of the Arizona Daily Star, 
there was a trail of blood and footprints leading away from the bike to the body, suggesting to detectives that little Cindy was dragged to the spot where she was found. Pathologist Dr. J. Anderson, who would later perform Nancy's autopsy, said Cindy had been shot in the back of the neck, the lower back, and in the front of the left shoulder. He was quoted as saying that he could not say for certain whether she was sexually assaulted, but he could not rule out the possibility. The area where Cindy was found was frequented by hikers and horseback riders, and the sheriff's deputies were questioning golfers and residents who may have been in the area at the time. It was reported that Cindy was killed by a 22 caliber rifle. Richard Gilman of the Daily Star reported that Cindy was wearing only her tennis shoes, a blouse, and part of her undergarments. Detectives interviewed Cindy's classmates, but said they found no motive or any explanation for her murder. Kath, actually, when I was reading articles for this, I kind of had the vibe that maybe the pathologist was saving the Winter family from the information. Oh. It's pure speculation on my part, as we are wont to do. Exactly. <laughs> Which means it must be true. Exactly. <laughs> it's what we do best. Yes. <laughs> but it's just like the way the articles were written, I can't confirm, I can't confirm, I can't confirm. You know, so I just felt like, mm, yeah, I bet he really could. But that's just me. But you know what? I don't think that's a bad thing either. Yeah, I, I hear you. A plaster cast was taken of a footprint and fingerprints from her bicycle were mailed to the FBI crime lab in Washington. According to Greg Chamara of the Arizona Star Daily, four days after Cindy's murder, Pima County Sheriff Walden Burr told the public that they were looking for a suspect approximately five foot seven, weighing 170 pounds, who may have known Cindy and her dog. Detectives believed the murderer may have known Cindy because the boxer bulldog she was with tried to keep strangers and sheriff's deputies away from her body when it was discovered at about 5 p.m. on Sunday. It was under this oppressive caseload that Nancy Harwood's case came to the Pima County Sheriff's Department. Three inexplicable murders in two months off the same stretch of land. Nancy's investigation was assigned to, as we know, Detective Sergeant Lyon, and although the department was insufficiently manned and funded, Detective Lyon had a reputation for being a tenacious investigator. In an article by Dave Green of the Tucson Daily Citizen, written four days after Nancy's murder, it was reported that a green Ford Maverick was seen parked in front of Nancy's house the night before she was killed. A resident in her Tucson neighborhood reportedly called the sheriff's office and said it had an out-of-state license plate. In the same article, it was reported that a private detective named Herman Place said Nancy had contacted him six weeks before she was murdered and told him that a green Mustang had followed her on two occasions as she left her home. And of course, Kath, they did report where the victim lived. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I know. The private eye also said Nancy had received three or four anonymous phone calls, one being threatening and three being obscene. Nancy reportedly wanted security and the PI told her to call the police. She never showed up for an appointment she made with him and she gave no clues as to the identity of the driver of the green car. That sounds a little hokey. Well, exactly, because I'm going to read you what's next. Oh, it says, <laughs> All right, jump the gun. <laughs> The next day, journalist Bob Thomas of the Arizona Republic quoted Nancy's husband, Gerald, as saying that she never complained to any family or friends that she was followed by a green car. She never told him of any anonymous phone calls either. Gerald said Nancy was not the type to keep secrets, and he believed the private eye was mistaken. That was a euphemism. I know. It was very gracious of him to use the term mistaken. Exactly. Rather than freaking lying to get attention. <laughs> In a different article, Virginia Hodge, this is Nancy's friend who was caravanning to Mexico with her, said she was unaware of any green cars in their neighborhood before embarking on their road trip. A man named Jerry Jantz had been hitchhiking on the Ajo Highway and was picked up in a green car on the day of Nancy's murder. He provided the sheriff's department with a description and a sketch of the driver was released. The description was of a young man with light-colored hair and a handlebar mustache. Bow chicka bow wow. This is 1970, baby. I would have expected Texas, but I'll give it to Arizona too. Yeah. The fact that he's hitchhiking, 
you know, as we know, hitchhiking was very freaking common back then. Right. Even when I was a kid, I still remember there were a lot of hitchhikers on the highways, which I could never understand because there were also a lot of serial killers. (laughs) But anyway. Well, maybe those two went hand in hand. Yeah. Neither Sheriff Burr nor Detective Lyon was making public comments about the significance of any of the reported information. But it was revealed that they were investigating a 23-year-old sex offender named Daryl Gaither, who resembled the sketch. I would imagine there might be quite a few young men with those handlebar mustaches. Bow, chicka, bow, wow. The soundtrack for today's episode provided <laughs> by Kathy. <laughs> they were going to compare Gaither's fingerprints to all of the fingerprints found on Nancy's vehicle. Gaither had served time at Arizona State Prison in 1965 on a second-degree rape charge, and legally, that is, sex with someone unable to consent, minor, drunk, incapacitated somehow. My law degree is going really well. Right, exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Thank you, Kim. (laughs) Thank you, Kim. But he was paroled in 1968, so just three years into a sentence that was supposed to be six to 12 years. At the time of Nancy's murder, he was wanted in California, Texas, and Missouri for various charges, but he escaped each jurisdiction before the legal process played out. And Kath, some of these included robbery, sexual assault with intent to commit murder, and severely beating a 22-year-old pregnant girl. Don't know if he was the boyfriend, responsible in any way, but the end result was the same. Either way, it shakes out. It's not a good thing. (laughs) Exactly, You're like, there has to be an excuse for this. Well, no, it wasn't an excuse. It was just more like they didn't tell us if it was. It's kind of random. Yeah. Did he just find some 22 year old pregnant girl and start beating on her? Yeah. 10 bucks. It was his girlfriend. Yeah. Four days after Nancy's murder, the FBI arrested Gaither at a home in Ajo just off Route 85. As you can imagine, the public was devouring news about Nancy's investigation But any hope they had that the police had caught the killer faded when authorities announced that Gaither had an airtight alibi. By May 31st, 1970, just nine days after Nancy's murder, journalist Bob Thomas of the Arizona Republic wrote an article entitled Another Unsolved Murder on the List? He reported that clues were scarce in the rape and murder of Nancy Harwood and there was a good chance that Pima County would add yet another unsolved murder to its growing list. After Cindy Winter was killed, a reward fund for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer was established. And at this point, which is just two months later, that amount had grown to $5,000. And Kath, what was interesting is that in an Arizona Daily Star article, They told the reader where to mail contributions, and the article said that if you had any information about the slaying, you could mail your information to a P.O. box that would then be turned over to the sheriff's office. I'm guessing this is like early crime stoppers. You can remain anonymous. Exactly. Detective John Lyon rarely gave details about his investigation, and the public was clearly concerned about the time and effort dedicated to the seemingly random murders. Ten days after Nancy's murder, Dave Green of the Tucson Citizen reported that Virginia Hodge was placed under hypnosis by Dr. Von Dedenroth. And of course, they gave Nancy's home address. (laughs) (laughs) According to Sheriff Burr, under hypnosis... Virginia was able to provide Detective Lyon with a partial license plate of the green vehicle she saw on the highway before Nancy was murdered. She was said to have recalled the first two letters of the plate indicating the car was from Pima County. Virginia was not able to describe the driver of the green car, which was again still whether it was a Mustang or a Maverick, and Dr. Von Dedenroth said he worked with Virginia five times hoping to uncover something that had been blocked out by shock and trauma. Detective Lyon, Kath, he was there during these hypnosis interviews, and he sat and he took notes, but he didn't reveal the contents of his notes. Of course, the doctor did pat himself on the back and talk about how wonderful he was and all the information that came out. And I'm sure his sessions were incredibly helpful. Exactly. One thing that Detective Lyon knew was that when ballistics came back from the FBI, both Cindy Winter and Nancy Harwood were killed with 22 caliber weapons. Detective Lyon thought that perhaps they were related. Both appeared to be sexual assaults, both off highways in the desert, both shot while riding, 
one riding a bike and the other one driving a car, and both appeared random. Ernie Luna's murder, according to Detective Lyon, was more unusual. Although it was close in time to Cindy's and off of Ajo Highway, it otherwise appeared unrelated. There was no sexual motive and a different weapon was used. Unbeknownst to the public, one clue gave Detective Lyon momentum on his investigation of Cindy Winter's murder. It had been publicized that she was killed by a 22 caliber rifle. Four days after her murder, a real estate broker named George Spiesel called the sheriff's office and informed them of a post in the classified ads of a local newspaper that drew his attention. It was an ad for a lost Marlin 22 rifle, giving the telephone number of a local residence. Detective Lyon interviewed the young wife and mother who posted the ad. She informed the detective that her husband had lost his rifle. She had placed an ad in the hopes that it would be found, but unfortunately, it was still lost. Do you remember when people regularly read the classified ads? Yes. And do you remember how expensive they were? I did not know that because I never posted one. Well, I never posted one either. But just fast forward however many years when I was working doing public relations and marketing and things like that and working for elected officials, there were legal notices that you had to post. Those things are hugely expensive, but the classified ads were as well. Investigators interviewed the husband, Dwayne Danes, who walked detectives through the last time he saw his rifle telling them he lost it when it bounced off the back of a sand buggy. As detectives were looking into whether somebody could have used Dwayne's rifle to kill Cindy Winter, Nancy Harwood was murdered. In a shocking announcement seven weeks after Nancy's murder, Sheriff Burr informed the public that Nancy's killer had been caught. According to Monty Gast of the Arizona Daily Star, 24-year-old Dwayne Danes, the owner of the lost rifle, was arrested on July 15, 1970, at the San Manuel Magma Mine in Pinal County, where he worked as a mine car operator. And again, because of his arrest, they had to post his address again. Exactly. His poor wife. Just in case you forgot where he lived. Right. <laughs> Just in case all the haters wanted to post up. <laughs> exactly. According to the article, Judge William Frey had signed an arrest warrant that morning, and investigators worked with Pinal County sheriffs to make the arrest because Danes lived outside of Pima County's jurisdiction. So much for Dr. Von Dedenroth's so helpful hypnosis of Virginia. Exactly. <laughs> that warranted nothing useful. Exactly. Danes was the father of a three-year-old and had attended Rincon High School in Tucson for three years before graduating from South Mountain High School in Phoenix. According to Sheriff Burr, Detectives John Lyon, Ron Connor, and Melville Hill, an estimated 2,500 man-hours had been spent in the investigation of the slaying of 27-year-old Nancy Harwood. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. So now you're going to hear the story behind the story and how Danes was caught, which was a testament to good police work. This episode emanated from a book that I read on a plane. I think I was going to Jamie and Patrick's wedding. Whenever I go on a plane, I always buy a paperback and a very large bag of peanut M&Ms. That's my flight meal of choice. And entertainment. Yes, exactly. So I pick up this book and it's called Field of Bones. And the author is J.A. Jantz. It was written in 2018, and the book was about a serial killer who kidnapped women and kept them in a remote underground location. At the end of this book, Kath, 
in the epilogue, the author, whose name is actually Judith, wrote, I'm thinking about the tragic event that propelled me into my career as a writer, an encounter with a serial killer that happened near Tucson, Arizona, 48 years ago today. You might say that my starting to write some 12 years later was a bit of a delayed reaction. Kath, what Judith does in this epilogue is she walks us through hers and her husband's involvement in this. So in 1964, when she tried to enroll in the creative writing program at the University of Arizona, she was turned down on the basis that she was female. Hello, 1960s. Dude, when I was in law school, and this was not in the 1960s, (laughs) despite sometimes I feel that old, but... (laughs) But you never look it. (laughs) (laughs) But I was supposed to do an internship in San Francisco District Attorney's Office in the Environmental Division. They were starting like a new Environmental Division. I'm like, oh, I want to do that. And so all I had to do was send them my transcripts. And my transcripts in law school were not great, but I was in good standing. Now, a DA from San Francisco had flown to the Long Beach airport to interview me, and I was going to go to USF Law School for a semester. That was the plan. I was accepted to the position in the DA's office, and USF Law School was waiting for me to send my transcripts. So they had to come certified from the dean. I go in during the summer, and this is supposed to start, say, a month away. So I go to meet with the dean, and this dean does not know me. And I sit down. I go, hey, I submitted this request. You got to send USF my transcripts. And he sits back at his desk and he goes, you know, I don't think you should go. You're running from your grades. And I said, what do you mean I'm running from my grades? I am in good standing. And he goes, well, maybe if you had a better reason, like maybe if you had a fiance up (gasps) in San Francisco, those words came out of his mouth. Kathy, it was like every cell in my body was suddenly electrified and I ran out of his office so that he didn't see me cry. Good job. I left my purse on his chair. (laughs) And I went, I was outside. I could not believe my, I was crying in frustration. Right. Yeah. And that's the whole thing is that's when women cry most of the time, but never let the person who made you that frustrated and angry see you cry. Right. It's better to hit them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I go back into the office looking for any other dean in the universe, but everyone was on vacation. He was the only one there. And so I missed my deadline. USF did not accept me, like they rejected me, and I had to call the DA and say, sorry, the gig is off. And my criminal law professor was super pumped up that this was happening because now there's going to be reciprocity between, you know, USF and our law school, blah, blah, blah. And so he sees me on the first day and he goes, what happened? What happened to your internship? And I told him he couldn't believe his ears. How old was the dean? Oh, he was, he had no excuse. He was probably like, I'm ballparking late 40s, maybe early 50s. Yeah. And then I subsequently had him in a class as a professor and he asked me a question in one of the classes and I looked at him like, uh-huh, up yours. I just mad dogged him. I did not answer him. And that was it. Nice. He never called on me again because they do things Socratically. Right. Like they call you and they ask you a question. I looked at him like, are you kidding me? Right. You know, but then you I had to have the right. To I had look to really, me. really, really, really work hard to make sure I passed that class. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, that'd be the one thing that would scare me. Oh, that, that, I mean, trust me, I studied like hell and I was very motivated, but oh my God. But it's funny because what I thought was interesting when I was reading this epilogue, the fact that she was rejected because she was female, 10 bucks says that's why she went by J.A. Jantz. I had that same exact thought because as you know, after my dad died, my mom only used initials because... Oh, yeah. Remember, she did. And that's it, true. It Everything, was because that's true. nobody knew if that was a male or a female. And the assumption is it's going to be male. Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, Jerry was allowed into the creative writing course. So Judith went on to earn her first teaching degree in English and later a master's degree in library science. So in 1970, according to her epilogue, Jerry and Judith were teaching on what was then the Papago Reservation, west of Tucson, in the small town of Sells. They lived in what had been once ranch hand housing. It was a humble one-bedroom brick house with a polished concrete floor located 30 miles from town in either direction. So Tucson to the east and Sells to the west. The home was two miles off the Ajo Highway at the end of a rough dirt road, and the couple called it The Hill. It was seven miles from the nearest telephone or neighbor. On May 22, 1970, 
The day that Nancy was murdered, Judith and Jerry were teaching at a school in cells. Judith's principal said she had to stay after school to decorate the school for the prom that was being held the following day. However, Judith and her husband were expecting out-of-town company that evening, and their plan had been to meet at their remote home and go out to dinner together that night. Except, with Judith working late to decorate for prom, they had a problem. Judith and Jerry only had one car, so it was decided that after school, Jerry would walk over to the highway and hitchhike home. That way, Judith could drive home when she was finished decorating, and she and their company could all go into town for dinner. And Kath, even in the epilogue, she pointed it out that nuns who worked in Tapawa, which was not too far away, regularly hitchhiked. They had the mantle of protection, apparently. <laughs> I would agree with that. So Jerry left to hitchhike home around 3 p.m. while Judith stayed on to decorate. At 5 o'clock, when she was finished decorating, she began to travel home. As she drove, Judith noticed a number of unusual law enforcement vehicles parked at the tribal law enforcement headquarters. After meeting up with Jerry at home, they left with their company and headed east into Tucson. Halfway to a trading post seven miles away, they were stopped at a roadblock. They were informed that there had been a homicide on the reservation. They stopped for gas at the Three Points trading post, and while Jerry pumped gas, Judith went inside to pay. She found a deputy sheriff talking to the clerk who worked there, whose name was Shirley. Judith overheard the deputy say something about two little kids who were left in the desert and then something about a man in a green car. After Jerry and Judith were back in their vehicle with their friends and headed east into Tucson, Judith mentioned to everybody what she had overheard. Now, in the epilogue to the book Kathy read, Judith wrote that a couple miles later, her husband said, I wonder if that's the guy who gave me a ride home this afternoon. With that admission, they turned the car around and they drove back to the trading post. They told the deputy there who they were, where they lived, and that they didn't have a phone, but Jerry had been given a ride home by a man driving a green car. The next morning at 6 a.m., Detective Sergeant Lyons showed up on their porch and stayed for the next eight hours. Detective Lyon told Judith and Jerry about the shooting and rape of Nancy and how she was left to die as her two children were left in the desert. According to Judith, the murder happened at 20 past two, and an hour or so later, Jerry had been picked up by a man in a green car and driven to their house. He did not just drop Jerry off at the highway turnoff, but rather drove him up the two-mile dirt road to their home. The driver asked Jerry, do you leave your wife out here by herself much? And Jerry responded, well, she's got the dogs. What kind of dogs were they? Chihuahuas? I have no idea. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> Jerry told the detective that during their drive, the man did not communicate much, so he didn't think he had much information that would help the case. Judith, the future author, sat in on the eight-hour interview with her husband. She said the detective framed the questions in a fascinating way designed to elicit every detail possible. Like, honestly, Kathy, like interviewing somebody really is an art form. Judith was shocked by all the details Detective Lyon was able to help her husband remember. Jerry remembered the braided strap on a pair of binoculars on the floorboard, a woman's name on a check lying in the front seat, and bits of the driver's story about where he worked and what he was doing that did not make sense. After the Saturday interview, Judith and Jerry went to the school prom that evening as chaperones. The next day, Sunday, they met the detective in town and traveled from car dealership to car dealership until Jerry was able to say definitively that the man who gave him a ride had been driving a green Maverick. Finally! I know, I know, because the story is like back and forth, Mustang Maverick, Mustang Maverick. On Monday, Jerry returned to town once more so he could give a complete description to an artist who was to prepare a composite drawing. Jerry pointed out that the man was shirtless and had acne scars on his back. Newspaper articles described the driver as 120 to 140 pounds with dark skin, dark hair, and a handlebar mustache. Exactly. This differed from the light skin and light hair initially put out by the sheriff's department. According to Judith, in the epilogue of her book, she said that when Detective Lyon showed the sketch to Nancy's four-year-old son, the boy said, that's the man who killed my mommy. 
Detective Lyons suggested that Judith and her husband live somewhere else until the killer was caught, but they figured the hill was their home and who knew when he would be caught. They didn't want to have to run for the rest of their lives. As school let out for the summer shortly after Nancy's murder, Jerry left town to work a construction job like he sometimes did during school breaks, leaving Judith home alone. She carried a twenty-two revolver on her hip, and this is one of Kathy's favorite quotes in the epilogue, Judith said, I was there by myself. I had no phone. When the rains came and the road washed out, I hiked in and out. Our well had a rope pull pump. I was able to get the pump started. If you can get your own water in the desert, if you can handle yourself in the face of a very real danger, you earn a measure of independence that no amount of bra burning can ever duplicate. And in the course of those 60 days on my own, I became a different person from the one I had been before. As the detective narrowed in on Dwayne Danes, largely due to the ad in the paper his wife had placed, Judith said Detective Lyon feared another victim would be materializing soon. After working construction for a couple of months, Jerry returned home, and that's when Detective Lyon took Jerry to the mine where Danes worked. Jerry was able to identify him as the driver who picked him up the day he was hitchhiking. And according to the Arizona Republic, Jerry was asked to participate in a ruse, which he did. He cut his long hair and shaved his beard and put on a sheriff's uniform and pretended he was a deputy sheriff. He was taken to Danes after Danes gave Detective Lyon permission to have this other deputy, who he didn't know was Jerry, sit in his green vehicle. Jerry said the green car had a dashboard with similar features to the ones he had hitchhiked in on the day of the murder. But most importantly, he identified Danes as his driver. Once arrested, according to author Judith, the killer admitted he had been to their house three times in the preceding 60 days. Isn't that freaking bone chilling? Like, that's crazy. I know. That's terrifying. But not surprising. Not surprising. I mean, especially asked a question about, so do you leave your wife up here alone very often? I sure do. We got those two little yip yip chihuahuas (laughs) to protect her. And I'm speculating, but I'm betting it was close. Right. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Judith knew someone had been there because of the tracks made in the dirt road of her house. The first tracks that they found showed up the morning after the prom. So just two days after Nancy's murder. And Kath, Jerry was the one who identified these tire tracks because when Danes had given him a ride home, he had like extra wide tires. So two days after the ride, he sees additional tire tracks on his property. Okay, he still left and did a construction job after that. Because of these tire tracks, the detective believed that Judith would be his next victim. The first female victim was killed March 22nd. This is Cindy Winter. The second one, Nancy Harwood, was killed May 22nd, and July 22nd was coming in fast. That's so scary. Yeah. Like, so roughly 60 days between murders. Wow. But before July 22nd could get there, on July 15th, as we said, Dwayne Danes was arrested. The preceding story behind the story was from Judith's epilogue, but based on newspaper articles, What we know is that three weeks before Danes was arrested, law enforcement officers approached him as he arrived home from work at 1.15 in the morning. He was asked to come down to answer questions to clear him of suspicion. He was taken to the county attorney's office downtown for further questioning, where he was photographed with his shirt off, showing the presence of a heavy acne condition. His mustache by this time was shaved, but he gave hair samples as well as fingerprints. He was questioned for five hours. Now, he wasn't told the questions were being recorded, but whatever. He was told he was a suspect in Nancy Harwood's murder. And basically what the detectives did were saying things like, I know you killed her, you know, all this kind of stuff designed to get a confession. Anyway, this was actually the second time he was questioned. The first being when his lovely young bride placed an ad in the newspaper. That got him arrested. Exactly. Exactly. About losing his wonderful rifle. It was after the second interview that Jerry Jantz, dressed up like a sheriff's deputy, was taken to Danes' work and identified him as the driver. After Danes was arrested in July of 1970, he pleaded not guilty to murder. He was assigned a public defender, and a week later, the floodgate of information was open when his preliminary hearing went forward. Because so little information had been revealed about how he was captured, 
residents piled into a packed courtroom to hear the details about Danes. Those who could not attend eagerly read the numerous newspaper accounts of the details. Nikki Donahue and Ken Burton of the Tucson Daily Citizen covered the dramatic testimony. The pathologist testified, along with Virginia Hodge, Nancy's friend, and hitchhiker Jerry Jantz. But the star of the show was Detective Sergeant Lyon. He took the stand and testified regarding the investigation and how it led to Danes. Detective Lyons said that when Mrs. Danes posted the ad for a lost rifle, she did not inform her husband she was doing so. When looking into Danes, police noticed he had a green vehicle, which became very relevant after Nancy Harwood was murdered. Detective Lyon also explained Jerry Jantz's role and how he helped create a sketch of the driver of the green car. Detective Lyon then repeated a confession that had been elicited from Danes after his arrest. Detective Lyon said that Danes first saw Nancy in the Three Points trading post on the Ajo Highway. She was buying a soda and he decided to follow her. He followed for miles and when she was just past cells, Danes pulled up next to Nancy and fired at her through her open driver's side window, shooting her in the head and forcing her off the road. He followed her, and she was screaming, why, why, why? With a bullet lodged below her ear and bleeding profusely, Nancy begged Danes to spare the lives of her two children as he dragged her out of her car and into the desert. Detective Lyons said Nancy begged to know why he shot her. He forced her to undress and raped her, then shot her a second time. He tried to wipe his fingerprints from the car, then changed his clothes before returning to his home in Tucson. Detective Lyons said he asked Danes, do you know why you shot her? Danes replied, I don't know. In a unique move, Danes took the stand at the preliminary hearing and admitted to confessing to the murder. He said that before he was arrested, he willingly complied with detectives when they came to his home and asked to see his guns, one of which they wound up taking. They also took a pair of his shoes. Dane said that when he was arrested, detectives told him he would go to the gas chamber and described in detail what it would be like to die that way. Dane said Detective Connor told him, at executions they need witnesses. The detective told Danes that he'd be there when he was executed. The door would be closed and Danes would be looking at the detective as they dropped the pellets and that Danes would then look up at the detective and say, my God, he was right. Danes testified that he confessed out of fear after detectives told him they could make a deal with the county attorney. Danes said he confessed to get life instead of the gas chamber. On cross-examination, the prosecutor got Danes to admit that he knew he was being arrested for Nancy Harwood's murder and that more than once, detectives informed him of his constitutional right to remain silent and hire a lawyer before he confessed to the crime. The judge held Danes over for Nancy's murder without bail. Two months after being arrested for Nancy Harwood's murder, while he was still in jail, Danes was served with an arrest warrant for the murder of Cindy Winter. And Kath, this was slightly humorous because it's clear to me that the sheriff sort of set up this photo op. So you see Danes and he's standing outside of a cell and the sheriff is handing him this warrant. And Danes is looking at this piece of paper like it's a very serious situation. But it was a total like press photo op. Election time? Yeah, probably. According to Arizona Daily Journalist Judy Donovan, nearly a year after his arrest in Nancy's case, Danes, then 25, pleaded guilty to the murders of Nancy and Cindy. He was sentenced to two concurrent life terms in state prison following a probation recommendation for life without parole rather than the death penalty. And Kath, the newspapers allude to the fact that he was interviewed by a psychiatrist and that he had problems. And when he was being sentenced, the judge acknowledged that he had some problems, but it wasn't disclosed what it was and that he needed to be in prison for a long time and basically get control of himself, like time would heal him kind of thing. As to Ernie Luna, the month after Danes's plea agreement, the public became aware that Danes admitted to killing him. 
law enforcement had no evidence connecting Danes to Ernie Luna's murder. And they basically said, if you sign a confession, we're not going to prosecute. We just want to give the family a measure of peace. Danes signed the confession in front of a probation officer, Detective Lyon, as well as Danes' family. In the confession, he admitted that he shot Luna from about 15 yards away with a shotgun. He said, I just drove by and saw him and got the urge to kill. I couldn't control myself. He never saw me. And Kath, one of the articles I read about it said that he learned that cool guys kill. He How said, did he learn that? I don't know. He said from TV. Could have been Bonanza, Big Valley, The Rifleman, who knows? Yeah, any of those Wild West shows. <laughs> exactly. And so he admitted, according to this article that I read, he was practicing on Ernie because at some point he was going to do this to women. So here's the thing. He signs this confession and then he gives a detail specifically that after he shot Ernie Luna, he went up and he rifled through his pockets and he took a check. And Kath, it was like for $12 or $14, something like that. And the fact that this check was taken was evidence that it was actually him. So he wasn't being forced into a false confession. Correct. He actually did it. He actually did it. But they agreed because they had no evidence connecting him that they would let him confess without repercussions. After sentencing, Danes, barefoot and handcuffed, help sheriff's detectives search the Santa Cruz River bottom for the rifle that killed 14-year-old Cindy Winter. What he told them was that after killing Cindy, he took his rifle apart and buried it in the sand wash. Deputies began a search but could not find the murder weapon. The real estate broker George Speisel, who called police about the advertisement for the missing rifle, and hitchhiker Jerry Jantz, divided the award money for help leading authorities to Danes. Were it not for the skilled detective work, the happenstance that the killer picked up a hitchhiker and the random ad placed for a lost gun, who knows how many people Dwayne Danes would go on to kill. And 50 plus years later, Dwayne Danes is still incarcerated in Arizona. All right, bitches, let's talk Patreon. Mwah, 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 we love you. It's a term of endearment. Is that just my family? Exactly. It's only what you call me. We have how many extra episodes on Patreon right now? Three extra episodes and three blooper reels. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. more to come. And they're great episodes. So They are. I like those a lot. One of them covers the Washington, D.C. snipers. One covers the murder of Kimberly Neese from Montana. And the other is about the murder of Joanne Presti in Massachusetts. These are great cases. And we really encourage you to go pay for them. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll like them. You're going to like them. You're going to like them. And more to come.